This morning, we're continuing in our series entitled, What a Mess. And again, we've been discussing things and ways that we're, things that we're facing uh, in our society as individuals through this pandemic. And we're advocating and telling you ways that you can turn your mess into a message and trying to redeem everything that's going on. And today, our title is Conspicuous Consumption. Now, it's conspicuous because it's so normal these days that we don't even realize it and which means that we don't really have to hide it. And I was thinking, now this is for me. I was thinking this week, when did it happen for me? I mean, because I didn't even notice. One day, I'm sitting at home. I was completely content eating rice and beans and tortillas. And uh, growing up in Mexico, of course. And then the next day, I'm returning my steak at the restaurant because it's not cooked to perfection. When did it happen? When was rice and beans not enough for me? I mean, there must have been a day that it all changed for me, but I missed it. Uh, before that day, life was pretty simple. I was content. My needs were met. I was comfortable and fairly non-stressed. And, and then it happened. Something happened. Maybe I saw some bright lights, some, this big marquee sign that says you need to have this. And something started to come inside of me. And all of a sudden, I got this feeling of discontent. And I didn't like the way it felt. I wanted more. And I went from being content to saying, there must be more to life than having everything, right? You know, from that moment that it happens to us, the noise that follows is really an indicator that, that, that we're not exactly happy about the way things are. And basically, our life starts to become, at least I'm speaking for myself at this point, it becomes a series of events, and we move from being content to discontent. We don't even realize it, but we do know one thing. We want more. And one of the clear and present dangers of this pandemic, and I think you will agree with me on this, is that consumerism is ever-present in our life. Is it present? Well, Let's just say that all the big box stores, all the big online stores had record years this last year. And with all the advances in technology, a lot of us are working remotely, and now we're able to accomplish more in a 30-hour week than we used to about 10 years ago in a 40-hour week. So that means we should have more time for ourselves where we can develop a hobby, spend more time with our families, maybe work on our marriages, all this cool stuff that we can do. But did we do that? Statistically, the answer is no. In fact, we took up more time to do more things and we started remodeling the house and we started doing all kinds of things so that we can fill that time, work more hours so that we can accumulate more stuff. It's called conspicuous consumption because we are living in a society that is, for the most part, consumer-driven. And for me, every day that I scroll through all of my feeds, whatever social media I'm on, the first thing that I see is things that really interest me. They know me so well. I'm seeing cars. I even saw disinfectant because I was looking at disinfectant at church this week. So it all, it's all just popping up. They all magically appear on my feet. So today, companies are marketing so well to us online because they know us so well. But that's not it. I mean, it doesn't stop there. We still have billboards. They still exist. Every TV or radio commercial, every magazine ad, every brand label on clothing and shoes, it's all painstakingly created to make you discontent or to convince you that you won't be content unless you have it. It's what underwrites the sports industry because, endorse, because of endorsements. I mean, we're going to see and we're going to witness that today, this very day when we watch the Super Bowl. 
And those ads are so exciting, and they're all part of this amazing web of power that is woven to convince you that you are not satisfied or you are not complete unless some product is part of your world. I mean, have you ever had that experience? I have. You, you seem happy, and then there comes this commercial for this widget, and, and you don't have this widget, or it's a new version of the widget you already have, and you start to think, man, how did I manage my life without this widget? I mean, think about it. The whole purpose of advertising is to create this perceived need just long enough to make a sale. You know, commercials aren't there to make you feel better. Unless it's a public service announcement, they're, they're there to make you feel incomplete. Why else would they spend billions of dollars every single year on them? Every, every advertisement created with one goal in mind, to create discontent. So what happened during this pandemic, statistically, we've launched into an age of conspicuous consumption that we've never seen before. We're consuming and spending in a rate that has never been matched by a nation as a whole. And we want it now. You know, I don't order anything unless it's going to get here in two days, do you? Who wants to wait three days for anything? Sometimes I can get things the same day, and it's awesome. Or is it? And have you noticed that the acquisition of stuff hasn't really quashed your appetite for it? If only... If anything, it, it has increased it. You know, if, if only I had a bigger, better, and faster, if only I had a bigger, better, and faster, and that list never ends. Now, some have defined consumerism as having rather than being. And you, your worth and your value are measured for, by what you have rather than by who you are. It's buying into this particular lifestyle in order to find your value and your worth and your dignity. Yet as Christians, we know that we are defined by the fact that we are created in God's image and we have intrinsic value, worth, and dignity in Christ and Christ alone. I mean, this in itself, this consumerism that we're going through right now, this in itself is an epidemic. And it's rooted in this obsessive, almost religious quest for economic expansion and, and it's become this, this core principle of what we're now calling uh, the new American dream, right? Is it present? Well, I think so. We don't, we don't disagree on that. The question is, is it dangerous? Is, is there a danger for us in this? And I think the average person growing up wealthy or with affluence would say, you know, maybe, but so what? Who says there any, there's anything wrong with it? Doesn't God want to bless us? Who says it's bad for you? What's, what's wrong with wanting more out of life and wanting good stuff or more stuff? And, and here's where, where we all kind of have to make it about us. And we have to contemplate what is going on right now as I speak, because this is such a tricky, such a tricky subject that only God can reveal to you if this is an area where you have to work on. It's such a personal conviction. But I think that at a minimum, we could all agree that there's some red flags and there's some red flags that I think we should all contemplate this morning. And because if we don't, we, we have to be careful because it can lead to behaviors and attitudes that go against God's principles. 
It really is uh, perfectly depicted in one of the parables that Jesus said. He, I don't know if you guys remember, there's a parable that says that there was a rich man whose crops yielded this abundant harvest, meaning that he has so many harvests, he notices the, this, this surplus and he says, I know what I'll do. The one thing that he thought of, it didn't occur to him to do anything else. The one thing that he thought of is that I'm just going to build a bigger barn so that I can store all my stuff. That night, the Bible says that his life was required of him. And now this parable is called the parable of the rich fool. So let me share a couple of areas where consumerism can be dangerous for us as Christians. The first one is we have to be careful because it undermines or it can undermine our relationship with others. When we're used to consuming more than loving, we tend to create this expectation that we often put on other people without even realizing it. I mean, have you ever witnessed sometimes at the grocery store that people that are not getting what they want, so they kind of lose it because they're not getting what they want? Literally just happened to me uh, like a couple of weeks ago at Costco. There's this man at the return desk, audibly at the, at the top of his lung, just yelling at this poor employee at the return desk because he had an expectation and she didn't meet it, so he lost it. I mean, I was actually on my way over there to see just like this man is, I mean, there was something going on. And now we even have terms for people like that. And it's honestly totally unfair that we would call them a Karen or a Kyle. But these are are people who overly get upset when they don't get their way or they can't control an outcome because they're used to things being a certain way. Why is that? unless they had some expectation, a consuming expectation. But in contrast, Matthew 20, 28, it states that Jesus, just as the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. You know, having this consumer mentality goes against a foundational truth about Christ. And we should always be asking ourselves if we are here to serve or to be served. Do our actions, our words, our expectations, our relationships with everyone models Christ serving mentality. Because when we lose focus of that serve mentality, it causes this next one, that it starts to undermine our relationship with God. I mean, we know that God is loving. We know that he provides. We know that he supplies all of our needs. And the Bible says that he does it according to his glorious riches in heaven, meaning that he wants everything. He created everything for you and for me. But what if we only go to God to receive? It's been my experience that God loves me so much that even when I have selfish motives, he blesses me. That's the kind of God that I serve. But our danger here is that if our consumer mentality continues, we won't accomplish the plan that God has for our lives. And then we we get so much stuff that we fail to recognize that God has given it to us and to whom much is given, much is required. There was this, uh, this term, there is this term that was first used or introduced in 2005. It was called or it's called moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. It's a big word, but basically it derived from a study that they did with teenagers at the time, 2005. Those teenagers are now about 30 years old, and this is how they felt. 
To summarize it, moralistic therapeutic deism is a view that God is selectively for taking care of needs. It views God as something like this combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. You know, he's always on call. He's going to take care of all of your problems that arise. Professionally, he helps his people to feel better about themselves. And he doesn't necessarily want to become too involved in the process. It's kind of like we know this to be true. It's kind of like this genie in a bottle mentality. And sometimes we may even get upset or disappointed or angry at God when he doesn't answer our prayers because he didn't answer them on time and he didn't answer them the way we wanted to. I'm wondering how much our consumer mentality affects that. But it also affects our relationship with God as it relates to the church. You know, there, there's a strong current of this consumer mentality in the church of today. Like any business, I'm sad to say that the, the church has to contend with the attitude of those who come to be served rather than to serve. I mean, either it will meet their expectations or they can pack it up and go down the street to see if it will suit them better. Because that's what you do when you're a consumer. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand looking for a church. I looked for a church at some points in my life. I understand it. But we should always be asking ourselves, are we looking for a church to serve us or for us to serve God at? There's a story that caught my attention that was very sobering to me many years ago because it convicted me. And it's recorded in all the four Gospels. And I'm, gonna, I'm reading from the, the John version, but this is when Jesus fed the 5,000. And I think a lot of you guys are familiar with that story where Jesus miraculously takes two fish, five loaves, and he feeds over 5,000 people. That's done. The next day, Jesus goes away to pray. And then the Bible says that he goes across the lake to a place called Capernaum. And the people, you know, are, are following Jesus and, and they're looking for him and they finally realize where he's at. Word gets out and everyone, the same people that were fed the day before, the same people start, you know, going after Jesus. They get on their boats, they cross the lake and they finally find Jesus. And this is what Jesus tells them. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I perform, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, he says, you are here because of the all-you-can-eat buffet. You're not looking for me. You're looking for me to serve you. And then he goes on to tell him, you know, I am the bread of life, and this is what you must do to do the works that God requires. Then the Bible goes on to say that from this time, when they heard that, many of his followers turned back and no longer followed him. You know, almost all the churches in the Bible have a tendency to drift from God. Paul tells the Corinthians, you know, I heard that there's division among you. Some of them were arguing like, no, I like this guy better than this guy. And I like his preaching better than this guy. Of course, we don't do that. You know, and we go to churches because of the different styles and the things that we're looking for. <clears throat> he says, I heard Paul telling the Corinthians, I heard there's immorality among you. And that you're proud of it. You have to go back and read Corinthians now, don't you? So you can see what I'm talking about. And Paul's kind of, I'm paraphrasing, he says, seriously? Didn't I tell you that it was all about Jesus? And then I read about the churches in Ephesus and in Revelation of Laodicea and the church in Corinth and the church in Galatia. And we see all of their faults and all of the things that they struggle with. And it started to make me think like, well, what about us? 
What about the American church? When we come to worship and we sit around for about an hour and we walk out and we may say, you know, I didn't like it today. I didn't feel it. I didn't connect with the worship team. You know, the the children's ministry was not up to my standards. So you might have a tendency to go down the street to find one that will. And and, and I'm here to tell you that from a biblical standpoint, there's, there's a lot in that statement. But from a biblical standpoint, it just doesn't make sense. That's more of a consumer mentality where you get to pick and choose, where you can say, I didn't like it, I didn't connect, I didn't feel it. But aren't we gathered to please him? Isn't it all about Jesus? Aren't we here for him? Aren't we concerned with just what pleases him? That is what this gathering is all about. And God, in his infinite love for us, connects with us, administers to us, ministers to us, embraces us, speaks to us, convicts us. Do you think the high angels in Revelation 4, when praising God, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, at the end of the day go, you know, I really didn't like it today. Political philosopher and historian, his name is Tocqueville, probably best known for uh, a book that he wrote called The Works of Democracy in America. Catch this. In 1830, writes this. Restless in the midst of abundance is a spectacle as old as the world. All that is new is to see a whole whole people performing it. Restlessness amid abundance is the attitude that brought down Eden. The love of stuff. And again, Paul best describes it in Romans when he says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Regardless of how good things come to us, there's only still one original source. And we miss the boat when we place our trust somewhere else. This past Friday... Uh, we took the grandkids up to the mountains, um, and we wanted to just go into the snow. They actually have never been to the snow, so we went sledding, and we built the snowman because not building a snowman would have been un-American, so we had to do that. And we stayed at somebody's house that had this scripture in this living room, and it caught my attention. It wasn't part of my message, but I saw it on Friday, and I go, this is exactly what I'm talking about, and it says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it reminded me that at that point, the Israelites had settled into the promised land and they had gone back to worshiping other things and creating other things and getting other stuff and accumulating stuff. And and Joshua here says to them, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. It doesn't say choose today whom will serve you. My truth this morning is that I think this scripture and this conviction is for me. But the good news for me as well is that I think God understands my struggle. We know that we serve a loving and merciful God. We serve a forgiving God. And God says that he wants to bless us and give us the desires of our hearts. It's just that oftentimes our consumer mentality may skew the desires of our heart. And then it puts us at odd with God and what he wants for us. 
So I want to suggest a few ways that we can redeem and that we could turn that mess into a message. And one of those things, if we do struggle with that consumer mentality, is to rediscover contentment. The opposite of consumerism is contentment. And for some, that's a negative image. You know, some people think that being content is someone who just sits there and is lazy. But, that, but that's not what contentment is all about. In fact, some of the laziest people are some of the unhappiest and discontent people out there. Not being able to really understand that in a positive light is another indicator that we as a society have lost the secret of being content. But this is how Paul puts it in Philippians 4. He says, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret. He has a secret for us of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And here's a secret. He says, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Think about the impact of these words, because when Paul writes this, he is in prison. You know, con consumerism at its core is a heart problem. So it should be to no surprise that if you want to have contentment, we need to have a heart change. We need to engage in some honest-to-goodness, heart-changing to get out from under this cloud of discontent. So let me suggest a couple. There's a lot of different ways, a lot of practical, biblical ways, but I want to focus on a few that I felt were important to me because, remember, I'm preaching to myself this morning. First one is to focus on the eternal. Let me tell you, an American Jew went to visit the Holy Land and to visit a famous teacher by the name of Rabbi Chime. And when the American entered the rabbi's home, he was amazed at how little there was in his home. All the rabbi had was a table, a bench, and this little pallet where he put his stuff. The American perplexed says, you know, rabbi, where is all your furniture? And the rabbi asked him, like, where's all your furniture? Again, the American perplexed, like, furniture? I don't have any furniture with me. I'm just passing through. And the rabbi says, so am I. Paul, in 2 Corinthians, he says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is, eternally, is eternal. I think we need to learn to be able to look at earthbound things just as that, earthbound things. You want to discover contentment? Fix your eyes on the eternal. Again, Paul writes to Timothy, and he tells him that godliness with contentment is of great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Rice and beans, right? Paul is challenging us to consider what is really necessary in life. He's saying that there's a difference between wants and needs. And knowing the difference leads to contentment. Another way to discover contentment is to simplify. That means everything. You would simplify your speech, that your yes be yes, your no be no. You would simplify all of your possessions, your commitments, 
That means your time. I mean everything. In fact, that's one of the things I love about our denomination. For those of you that don't know, we are a friend's church. We came from this movement called the Quaker movement. They're known as the Quakers. And it was this movement that started right around the late 1600s. And the Quakers were well known for their convictions or testimonies, as they called it. And one of their testimonies or convictions was a commitment to simple living. They valued simplicity in speech, in life, in worship, in family, in ministry, and this meant moderation and worldly pursuit. And it was evident in the way that they dressed and the way they did business. I mean, it's an example that I, that, that I struggle with. And, you know, the Quakers didn't barter. They believed in setting reasonable prices and sticking to them, which means they would have been terrible car salesmen or pretty much anything that, that requires getting the best price, right? They would have been terrible at that. Their commitment to simplicity in business was so great that this is what they did and if they were getting too much for their products. Oftentimes, they had a surplus. And for them, back, back in the day, it was, it was usually crops. But when they had a surplus, and what they did, you think they would just build bigger barns to keep all their stuff or, or buy more stuff? No, they, they would specifically curtail their production or their operations so they wouldn't have so much. And any access that they had, they would just give away to the poor. And that the reason they did this is because they did not want to risk being conceited or vain. I mean, can you guys imagine giving up more profits? Isn't that totally the opposite of what we're taught today? I mean, there is no corporation in existence that I know that would say, you know, I made enough. Let's stop. I mean, I know of some great corporations that are getting outside of themselves, but to say no to more profits, who does that? It goes against, it's such a foreign concept to us that we might even have a hard time wrapping our head around it. And here's the deal. I'm not asking you to sell your house and sell your car and trade it in for a horse and buggy. That's not what this message is about. Or to live off the grid. I am simply suggesting that you consider if there's any area of your life where consumerism is leading your life, not the other way around. Matthew 6.33, popular scripture, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Again, a well-known scripture. If you recall, Jesus, before saying this, he goes out, don't worry about tomorrow, for today has enough things of their own. Don't worry about what you eat and what you, uh, what you wear. I mean, this scripture to me helps me to simplify my life. If I want a simple life, it tells me, first seek the kingdom of God first. If I want a simple life, we need to limit our distractions from the seeking Instead of going out and toiling about to try to see what we're going to eat and what we're going to wear, limit our distractions. If you want a simple life, we need to let God add to the resources, not the other way around. If we want a simple life, we need to stop complaining about the small things and rejoice in the big things. I mean, that's really the key to simplifying our life, to seek the kingdom of God first. Because how we pursue our resources, you know and I know, determines our priorities. And you see, consumerism, while evidence in the physical, it is, like I already mentioned, at its core, a spiritual issue, is a, is a matter of the heart. So if we struggle in this area, and God is speaking to you this morning, not through my voice, but through his scripture, which it promises to cut deeper in a two-edged sword, simple. We just ask God to transform us. 
God is faithful. It's the same God who senses Jesus who said, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Paul writes to the Romans and tells them, be excellent at what is good. The disciples early on cried out to the Lord and said, increase our faith. And it reminded me of the early church. When the church was formed, and it's in the book of Acts, if you want to read it, there's a whole chapter, specifically chapter 2, that tells us. And at the, verse 42, this is what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They devoted themselves to teaching, fellowship, eating, awesome, and prayer. That sounds pretty simple to me. You know what pleases God? Teaching. That we would open up his word and not just read it, but that we will tremble at his word. So let's redeem it. Let's grab a couple of friends, maybe starting with our family. Let's open up his word and let's tremble at his word. And then we would devote ourselves to prayer during reading of his word and to his presence and seek his presence first and see what happens. When was the last time you made a decision based upon him, where you come to God and you ask him, Father, what would please you more in this? What would make you happiest in this situation? Father, you are my God and you are my master. You tell me what to do. I think what you're going to find is that God will still give you the desires of your heart. But you will be surprised when those desires are more about him than you. Because that scripture first says, delight in the Lord, and then he gives you the desires of your heart. Delight in the Lord. And that's what I want to share with you and close with you this morning. It's just you doing his will, going before God and saying, God, you are my God. Your law is in my heart. I will meditate on your scriptures. I'm going to have an honest heart, starting with myself, and I'm going to be obedient to what you're going to have me do, and I'm going to pray, and it's all going to be about you, just like we sang about this morning, when it's all about you going back to the heart of worship. When you do that, he puts the desires of his heart and makes them the desires of your heart. That's when you start to serve the needy, to advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves, to serve the less, the less fortunate, to preach the good news of Christ to all those who haven't heard it or are far from Christ or need. God, there's so many people right now that just need to hear an encouraging word, not from us, but from God himself. And he's going to use you to do that. So I invite you this morning that if that's something that you want to join us with, I ask that you would join me, that you would join this church and just to teach, to, to fellowship, to get together, to eat, to break bread. I mean, that's awesome. Again, and to devote ourselves to prayer. Because our reality is that our collective micro decisions and actions will make a macro impact in the lives of people here and all around the world if we commit ourselves to that. Another reality is that we're all consumers, but we don't have to be victims of consumerism. And I will lastly ask you this morning that you will choose today whom you will serve. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we've just read your word. 
I know it speaks truth into our life, Lord. So I first ask that it would be planted in our hearts in such a way that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that it would make a difference as we walk out of these doors for your glory. Lord, this morning we want to return to the heart of worship, Lord, and say wholeheartedly with all of our being, whatever it is in us, Lord, that it is all about you. Lord, and that we're sorry for the, this consumer mentality for making it about us. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness this morning. And we pray that you would be our everything and help us, Lord. Help us, Father, to come to terms with our reality. Lord, that with you by our side, Lord, that you are more than enough. All that we need. Father, and even then now, I know there's people that are in desperate need of something, Lord. That's the beauty of coming to you, that you still come before us and you minister to us, Lord. So I pray that you would give according to your glorious riches in heaven to every single person listening to my voice right now, whether in person or online, Lord, that you would minister to them, comfort them, give them peace, give them courage, perseverance, Father. Heal them in the name of Jesus. Because it's all about you. And ultimately, Lord, we will glorify you. We need you this morning, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.